0: We're glad that you're here, and if you're online, we're glad that you're there as well. We know that during this time, uh, as many of us are still trying to be very safe and cautious, that the online option is a great one, and if you use it, often that's great. If you're here, that's great. It's the same uh, in regards to you being connected to our church, but of course, being here is a bit of a different experience, but we want you to be growing in Christ through this. That's the main thing that matters, and uh, it's a difficult time. It's an interesting time. I don't know if you've paid any attention to the recent documentaries that have come out regarding 9-11. Did anybody watch any of those over the last week or so? Okay, some of you have. Donna and I uh, spent the better part of this week and the evenings just kind of catching up on one of them. And it was incredible to watch. And the feelings that we felt and just the sense of just sort of uh, hushed awe. And all the same emotions that we had then, we had now as if it were happening today and we're watching this footage and we see the plane fly into the second tower and all of those things just come rushing back. And, of course, you remember where you were and all the things that you felt. Do you remember the sense of unity that our country felt? Uh, It began that evening when members of Congress got on the steps and and sang, God bless America. Um, And it extended for months I remember the sense of solidarity that we all felt. I remember being in church the Sunday after that Tuesday. And of course, you know, we hadn't seen crowds like that since the previous Easter. And this sense of uh, we're in this together. My, how things have changed in 20 years. How different it is now. And how strong the disunity seems to be prevalent. And I don't know if this is true or not, this is just my observation, but as I look at our country and as I think about where we were and where we are and maybe how we got there, my little theory is this. I know that when this happened back in 2001, that we were united and that we felt a sense of solidarity together, but we were united around a couple of things. Fear was one of them. We couldn't imagine if this could have ever happened on our soil to this degree, to this, this extreme and we were united around a common enemy, some would even say hate toward an enemy. And I know that when fear unites you, it's not very long until you begin to turn on one another. I know that when you have a common enemy, one that you might even ascribe a a word as strong as hate toward, it won't be long until you begin to use that same emotion to other people. Even your brothers and sisters and, and fellow fellow countrymen and women. I know that the only thing that can unite people beyond fear and hate, deeper, stronger, that can even endure difficult times is love. That's the only thing that can unite. And so let's just take a moment to pray, not just for what we remember and what we know that we endure, but for what we're experiencing now, and that we would pray for unity and love to uh, take center stage, all of us in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we remember. We remember what happened. We remember where we were. We remember the, the stark images and the, the feelings of, of fear, disbelief. Lord, you tell us many times in your word to remember that we would not repeat history. We remember the things that we've learned over time and We pray that in this current season, that the love that you have filled us with, that it would take priority in the way we treat each other, the way we care for one another, the way we forgive our generosity. We pray that the love that we have in you would transform us. And transform every relationship that we have. And we're grateful that we can gather today, whether in this place or in homes dispersed. We're grateful for your word and worship and each other. As a church, we all pray this in the name of Jesus. And we say together, amen. Josh undersold the uh, the role of Newfoundland in the... Uh, experience of 9-11. I don't know, have you seen Come From Away? Who's seen it? Anybody seen it? It's a musical that's out, it's on Broadway, and there's a a movie version available online. And when the planes were diverted away from various airports, many of them, do you remember how many thousand people, Josh? About 7,000 people ended up on the little rock that we call Newfoundland. And uh, they had to stay for a period of time in the the musical is all about that. Lee and Heather are watching online right now. They're, they've joined us from from that little rock we call Newfoundland, and we're glad that Newfoundland sent us Josh. Aren't you thankful for Josh? Yeah. All right. So we're just in a two-week little short series called Jars of Clay. Uh, Probably a few months ago, Don and I were in a restaurant and I caught the beginning lines of this poem by Rudyard Kipling. It was on the wall. It caught my attention because of this opening line. And this is what it said. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. And I thought... I mean, I don't know much about Rudyard Kipling. I mean, you remember the Jungle Book. He wrote that and several other classics. I don't know what he's going to say about this, but this caught my attention because I want to know what it means and how somebody would even suggest that you can keep your head while all about you, everyone else, is losing theirs because I feel like this is what's happening today. And you can read the poem if you like for yourself. It's called If... And he has some good thoughts and they're, they're thoughtful, wise things that he says. But this, I believe, is exactly what Paul had in mind when he wrote these two chapters in Second Corinthians, chapters 4 and chapters 5. I feel like he had the same idea in mind that the Corinthians and maybe even our church today and the big church all across the country and even the world and even those of us who aren't even a part of a church are losing our heads and missing the point Or maybe focusing on things that we shouldn't focus on. I feel like that Paul would say, this is how you keep your head. Or how he says it literally in the chapters, this is how you don't lose heart. And I think that for these few weeks, our hope is to grasp what he's saying so that we can move into this fall with a few ideas that will help us to remember what matters most. Over the next week or so, Don and I are going to be in um, Yellowstone National Park and Grand Teton National Park. It's one of our favorite places ever. and We're going to spend some time in Grand Teton, but two of those days while we're gone, we're going to do a, a backpacking uh, hiking journey, a little bit longer than normal, about 20 miles or so. This, this particular hike takes you down to Lake Solitude and up behind the Tetons a bit. And it's on Donna's bucket list to to get this done. And we've pondered it. Now we're finally going to do it. I I should say it's not on my bucket list. um, But I'm glad to help Donna mark something off of her bucket list. And so... To help us prepare to get ready for this trip, we decided to watch this little video that the National Park people put out regarding, you know, being backcountry near Grand Teton and uh, what that's like. I mean, I, I we love the wildlife and we'd love being there, but this is different. You know, we're away from our tent or camper, we're we're away from our car and we're out there, you know, kind of by ourselves and hiking, and there's some other folks, well-trafficked trail, but there's all kinds of things out there. And so this video helps school you up. Get you ready for being out there and the things that you might need. And so we watched it. We're watching this national park ranger tell us what to expect. And this is what he said. He said, when you're out there, you're in, you're in thick bear country. And I thought, well, I know that. We've been to the Tetons. We've seen the bears. When we've seen the bears, we've been behind uh, the shiny car that we're in. You know, it's protected us. And we've seen other people, seen the bears. But this is different. So we're out there. And he says that if you encounter a brown bear or a black bear, um, there's a good chance, especially if you surprise them, that they'll, they'll turn, they'll see you, and they'll charge you. There's a chance that they'll charge you, but just rest easy. There's also a very good probability that they will get very close to you and then stop because they're bluffing. So they're going to come at me. I'm standing there, right? And then they're going to stop and turn around. I, and this is what I thought. Donna's like taking notes, like, okay, they're bluffing. And I'm looking at her like, what are you doing here? Are we still going on this hike? This is. How would you know? How would you know if a bear is bluffing? Well, you know, because the bear's not on top of you, eating your face. You know, this is how you know. And I just thought, I, I can't even begin to fathom being able to be in that moment. And this bear turns and faces me and Donna, and we just stand there, and I think, I think he's bluffing. I think he's bluffing. And we just... I just can't even fathom it. So here's a question I want you to ponder as we jump into just a few thoughts I want you to take away today. Have you ever felt anxious or worried about something specific only to find out that your fear and your anxiety were completely unnecessary? Now, see if you can ponder a moment in time. When you were worried about something, something that you thought might occur or was in the process of happening or maybe you just conjured it up in your imagination, whatever it is, and you felt anxious about it, you felt worried about it, you weren't sure, and then eventually you found out that your fear and your anxiety were completely unnecessary. Maybe you you texted a friend who usually texts back pretty quickly. And you didn't hear from them and you looked for the little bubbles to see if they're typing and they weren't. And you wondered, maybe they're upset with me and maybe by the end of the day they still hadn't texted you back. And maybe you're waiting on information from the doctor's office or a medical test and the results of a biopsy or some screen and you just are absolutely convinced that the news is going to be detrimental or bad for you. Can you think of a time, specifically, when you felt anxious or worried about something specific? only to find out your fear and anxiety were completely unnecessary. So last winter, Donna got up early for work. She works up near the Lowry base. And that morning when she got up, it was a dark winter morning. It snowed a little bit. It's kind of rainy. It's slick. It's icy. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm heading out. And I said, well, do me a favor. I mean, it looks dicey out there. Could you just text me or call me when you get there, just so I know you made it there safe. I know about how long it takes her to get from our house to the care center that she works at. And so I just waited patiently. And that time came and went. And I waited and I waited. I don't want to bug her. I I don't don't know if I want to text her because she's she's driving. Maybe she's just running behind. Roads are a little rough. And so I thought, I'll call. She could at least answer. And so I called. The phone went directly to voicemail. I began to worry a little bit. I mean, she knew I was concerned before she left. Surely she would be thoughtful enough to let me know she arrived. So I thought, well, I'll just wait a few more minutes, and I tried it again straight to voicemail. Now, I never do this. I usually always just use her cell phone, but I thought, I don't know what else to do. I can't reach her via her phone, so I called the care center, the landline, and dialed the phone, and volunteer answered the phone and said, you know, this is the Denver Hospice. And I said, well, this is Phil Vaughn. I'm Donna Vaughn's husband. Um, I'd like to speak with her. And she said, oh, uh, I, don't think she, I don't think she's here right now. Let me, let me find out. She put me on hold while i And this has been an hour now. She should have been there a while ago. Then finally, the phone picks up, and it's Donna's voice. She says, hi, as if everything's just normal. And I just said, you know, we'll talk when you get home. <laughs> Because in my imagination, I had completely conjured the entire accident that she was in. I had pictured her her in the middle of a mangled mess of glass and metal, and and I was absolutely certain that, you know, I was going to spend the rest of my day or the week at the hospital. What about you? Have you ever felt anxious about something, worried about it, only to find out that it had not come to fruition at all, that that thing... The thing that you were anxious about, it it wasn't even a thing. It wasn't even real. It didn't exist. It would be like a bear charging you, and you know this bear is absolutely just bluffing. He's not going to come after me. This is the question that I think Paul wants us to wrestle with in these two chapters. Because if you've ever been in a time in history when somebody has laid out the bait for you to take it, it's right now. If you've ever been in a moment in time in your lifetime when you have been tempted to engage in arguments and discussion and debate and maybe pick one side or pick another or decide this is really important and the other things aren't important, it's been right now. What Paul would be wanting you to wrestle with is this question right here. What, what is real? Is it the bluffing bear? Is that real? Or the, the imaginative worry that you have conjured up in your brain? Is it the debate about this or that that's happening right now in our culture? What is real? What is deserving of your attention, your emotional energy, the care, the love, or the heart capacity that you have? Another way to ask it, what concerns should win the contest for your mental and emotional bandwidth? Think of it this way. If all of this is a, an appropriate question, and if care that you give, stuff that you're concerned about, that you maybe put your energy toward or, or decide that you're going to ponder and think about and give some attention to, if it's a limited quantity, and it is, because when you've felt fatigue over the last couple of years, it's because your little bucket of care, well, it's empty and you don't have any care to give, Somebody says, can you? And you say, well, I look at your bucket. You say, I don't care. I don't care anymore. I have nothing more to give to it. If it's a limited quantity, then this question is probably the most important one of the day. What should you give it to? What is real? I mean, if you're going to feel anxious and worry, which we shouldn't anyway, but we do, what should you be concerned about? And are there moments when the very thing that has captured your attention that you've given lots of energy to, this issue or this debate or this struggle, it's not even worth it in any way? Think about it like paper money, like your wallet, right? If you had some care to give and it had a little denomination, you know, ones and tens and whatever you would carry with you. When you're all spent and you open up your wallet and it's empty, what is worth The attention and the bandwidth that you have to give. This is what Paul is asking what is real when he says this in 2 Corinthians 4. So we fix our eyes not on what is what? But on what is unseen. In fact, let's just say that phrase together. You ready? The whole thing. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. And I don't even know if you can make sense of this. And Paul knows when he writes this that this is terribly confusing. How do you even do that? How do you fix your eyes on things that are unseen? And how do I make those the priority? And isn't it incredibly easy to get distracted or decide that you're gonna be emotionally invested in something that turns into nothing or just takes you down a path that is worthless? So Paul's gonna say this concept, this idea, in the two chapters I've mentioned, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, he's going to say it about eight times over and over and over again. Why? Well, because he knows that you and I get distracted by the shiny object we get distracted by the heated issue we get distracted by the debate or the emotionalism of the moment and we forget what matters most and we completely run down a road and then find ourselves empty and depleted and with nothing to give and it's been for nothing at all and so he says so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen Since what is seen is temporary, or to use our language that we used a minute ago, for what is seen as not real, it doesn't last, but what is unseen, well, it's eternal, or in other words, it's real. It's real. Now, I would imagine over the last few days or weeks or months, you have found yourself sort of living, we'll say it this way, in violation of what Paul has to say here. That you have found yourself maybe swept up by a, an issue or a feeling, or maybe you have found yourself focused very much or deeply concerned about what is temporary. And when we do that, we completely miss what is eternal. Knowing this is a hard concept, again, Paul just repeats it over over. And over and over again. In fact, right before this, here's how he says it. For our, say it with me: light and momentary troubles. Paul doesn't even know what you're going through right now, and how how incredibly rude of him to call what you're experiencing a light and momentary trouble. How, I mean, the audacity of the man to say to you and to me what you're experiencing is a light and momentary trouble. But then he compares it. Your light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we see it again and again. There's what's seen and what's unseen. There's what's not real and there's what's real. There's light and momentary troubles and there's an eternal glory over and over and over again. Paul repeats it. In fact, it's even in the key verse for the, where we got the name for this whole series when he says this, for we have this treasure in a what? Jar of clay. We talked two weeks ago about your jar, my jar, and what it looks like and how we pay attention to the jar. Working on the jar, your jar's in better shape than my jar, I'm jealous of your jar. All of these things are true about our physical appearance And we elevate it above so much. We spend so much time and energy about all of the things that are related to this jar. And Paul says it's an earthen vessel. It's fragile. It's common. It's all of these things. But it encases, it holds within it an all-surpassing power. It's clear it's from God and not from us. Now, what Paul's trying to tell here what he's trying to teach us isn't new it's been all through scripture and it is the very essence of the creation that god has given us that he's placed us in the midst of and it is in every story in scripture over and over again so you remember when israel got a king is the first king they had his name was saul and it's time for him to be on his way out and so god said it's time for a new king so he called his priest, was the last judge of Israel. His name was Samuel. And he said, I want you to go. You're going to find the new king, the next king that we're going to have. And so Samuel went and did his work. God directed him to the house of a man. This man was named Jesse. Maybe you know some of the story. And he showed up in Jesse's house and said, you know, God's led me here. I'm I'm here to anoint the new king. And So Jesse thought, "Ma, one of my boys is going to be king of Israel. So he brings his boys in, one by one, into the living room probably, and Samuel's there. And I don't know much about what they look like, but the oldest, Eliab, must have been a fairly impressive fellow because he walks in and Samuel thinks out to himself. He says, this surely must be God's anointed. And God whispers to Samuel this, do not consider his height, I guess he was tall. I don't know. Do not even consider his appearance. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the what? The heart. What's the same thing that Paul's saying? Oh, there's a jar. Eliab, got a nice jar. But what's on the inside? Well, there's a runt of a shepherd boy who's, Probably no business being king as far as everybody's concerned, reputation or appearance-wise. But his name is David, and he is a man after God's own heart. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to help us understand. And so, in other words, what is real? What's deserving of your attention, your energy? Well, I know what you're like at the end of the day you only have so much to give which concerns should win the contest for your mental and emotional bandwidth there's one more little analogy that he gives us before we finish chapter 5 and it's right at the beginning of it and this is uh, what I want you to take with you today is this beginning of chapter 5 2 Corinthians he says this same passage same context for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. Do you hear the either or? You hear it right away, don't you? I guarantee you, if you haven't gone back and read these two chapters in Second Corinthians and you spend a little time, you'll see the either or popping up every time, every other verse almost. So Paul says, we have an earthly tent. It's like the jar, right? It's like the things that are seen. And when it's destroyed, we're going to have a building the Greek word you know we, we have a similar uh, word in our language, "edifice, this structure. It's strong and it's built and it has a foundation. That's what we want. What have I got? Well, I've got a jar. I've got an earthly tent. but what God has for me is a, a building. It's an eternal house in heaven. and it's built by human hands. And Paul uses the, the beauty of his language to describe, if poetic. Poetic words. What it's like to live in a jar or a tent. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. What did it sound like when you got out of the bed today? Did it sound like that? Come on, it sounds like that when you get up from the couch. I know how you are. I mean, Donna will be in a different room, and I'll get up from some chair, and she'll holler from the other room, are you okay just from the noise I made? For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Now, for us, when we see this, we have an earthly tent. We think of a tent. You know, we're going to be out backpacking and hiking, and so we have to stay overnight. Our son does this, he does the trekking and the backcountry stuff. And so he said, I've got a tent you can use. And so he showed me the tent, handed it to me. It was about this big. I said, Where's the tent? He said, "That's the tent. I said, You're going to carry it. You don't want to carry a big tent, do you?" I said, "No, I don't. I mean, your, your mom's going to carry it." But um, <laughs> that, that turns into a tent. He said, "Yes, it's all you need. It's a flimsy tent that a bear could tear through, you know, very quickly. It'd be just like the wrapper on a piece of bubble gum, right? It's an earthly tent. That's what we think. But when the people who received this letter, when they..." Heard probably read out loud what Paul wrote, they didn't hear tent. They heard it very differently. This is what they heard. For we know that if the, what does it say? Say it with me. Earthly tabernacle. It's the same word. In the Greek, to us it means tent. To them it meant tabernacle. It's the same thing that it says in John 1 when Jesus came and put on flesh and pitched his tent near us. Another translation that they would hear then would be, he tabernacled near us. And every Jewish man and woman, even the Gentiles who live among communities of Jews would know exactly what that meant. And they hear this phrase that we are a part of or we inhabit an earthly tabernacle and immediately their memories would go to the wandering in the desert that the Israelites experienced after they were released from slavery. Moses led them out. And then they spent 40 years wandering between Egypt and Canaan. And they lived in a tent, a tabernacle. And they carried with them a tabernacle and set it up for their worship in God's presence. And when they hear this understanding, they know exactly what Paul is saying We have no home, we don't even know where we're supposed to send our mail. We are a nomad people. This is not our home. This is not how I feel about my home. I like my home. I set my home up the way I want it because I want to stay there a long time. I want to be there all the time. I want to hang out. I want it to be everything I need, comfortable. When I'm away from it, I want to enjoy returning to it. It's what I want out of my home. What the people of Israel knew is that this place is not our home, that there's something else, it's an earthly tabernacle. And so, in about two weeks, Jewish people all over the world will celebrate what we would call today Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacle, or the Feast of Booths. God established several feasts and observances. You know of Passover and maybe some others that are a part of Jewish life. He established these feasts so that they would remember the critical lessons that were learned by the people of Israel throughout history. And the Corinthians knew this because in the first letter that Paul wrote, he said this to them, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. And the whole chapter is about all the lessons that they learned when they wandered in the wilderness. And so, up in Denver in Jewish communities in two weeks, if you know where the Jewish people live, you should drive through the neighborhood and you'll see behind their house that they have erected a tent. It's called a sukkah, S-U-K-K-A-H. And it represents their dwelling for this period of time. They do it for seven days and they live there. You can get a sukkah if you like at sukadepot.org. actually. It's kind of expensive and it's not a tent you would want because it, it doesn't even come with a roof, you gotta buy that extra. And this structure belongs in your backyard or somewhere near your home and you stay in it as much as you can. You at least eat your meals there and you have your dwelling place, it doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Because right there is a house with a bathroom and walls, and the wind doesn't blow, and you don't get wet when it rains. And, but you are in your backyard in a tent to remind you of the lessons that the ancestors learned long ago in the wilderness. So if you lived in the wilderness for 40 years, what would you learn? Well, God would say, Follow me. Where are we going today? Well, for the Israelites, he gave them a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by the day. Where do we stay tonight? Just go, just follow the cloud, then you'll know. Where are we going to go tomorrow? Just follow the cloud. What's the question that God's testing his people with? Do you trust me? Do you trust me for today? Well, I don't need you to trust me for tomorrow. We'll do that tomorrow you trust me for today. What what are we going to eat? Oh, don't worry. I got that covered. It's going to fall from the heavens. It's going to land. What did they call it? Do you remember? Manna. That's right. Which means, do you know what it means? What is it? That's right. That's what it means. They looked out and saw the manna and they said, what is it? Then they tried to hoard it and it would spoil. And God says, no, 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 no. You've missed the point for today. This is our daily bread you trust me i know but i'm thinking about i know you're looking at the things that are un not real they're not real they're the seen things they're the things that will tempt you to put your trust in your home or your retirement account or your success or your relationships that give you comfort i need you to look for me to me for that all of it do you trust me can you walk with me That's what God's doing. You know that you are between Egypt and slavery. You were enslaved, but you've been freed. And the promised land. You know that, don't you? You're in between. And just like the Israelites, you're wandering, and hopefully God is saying to you that you hear his voice, just follow me, just trust me. I don't know where to go. I would like a pillar of fire. I would like a cloud. And God says, really, would you? I mean, I gave you one. You haven't read it once this week. I know. I want to follow. And so we learn from the lessons of the tabernacle that we have an earthly tent. And so we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. So back to the question. Have you in recent days, found yourself anxious or worried about something, a concern, a circumstance, a future problem, a current issue? And has that worry and anxiety set up camp in your life and in your heart? Has it caused you to take your eyes off the things that are real? Has it caused you to take the wheel back from God, not trust him? Has it caused you to spend your mental and emotional bandwidth and energy on things that just don't matter? Let me guide you through a bit of a prayer and give you a moment to reflect on this. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're at home, what an advantage you have just to be quiet in your own space. So Lord, we come to you, we pray right now, and we ask that you would help us to wrestle with this question. What in fact is real? real? Lord, what are the things that have been dangled in front of us, bait that we shouldn't have taken, issues that we shouldn't have engaged in, problems that aren't really problems, that have distracted us from the things that matter most? Lord, help us to wrestle with this question. What is deserving of our attention and our energy? At the family in front of us, the game that we want to play, the, the time that we'll spend together, the walk that we'll go on, the beauty in the earth in front of us, the creation that points to you as provider and, and good. So right now, just give the Spirit a chance to remind you of a couple things. Of maybe a moment this week when your attention was pulled away from the things that matter most to something that is trivial or irrelevant or even an important issue that doesn't rise to the top of what matters most. For some of you, God is is saying right now, Plainly and clearly I know you don't know where you're going just trust me and follow me I'll lead you I've led you all along I've never left you and I'll always be with you so just trust me so if God is before you and asking that question do you trust me what's your answer to him You might as well be honest. We're not answering out loud. Just express it to him right now. For some of us, the answer is an unequivocal yes. We've wrestled with this issue and we continue to wrestle with it, but today it's a yes. Uh, For some of us in the room, it's a, yeah, Lord, I want to trust you, but I'm afraid fearful. I'm unsure. I, I really like to have uh, control over what's happening next. So Lord, we are jars of clay. And so often our, our list of concerns and priorities is a bit upside down. We pray that you would cleanse us of fear and that we would turn to love as the solution that will bind us together and help order our steps. That this love that comes through Jesus, we know is the only thing that can change us from the inside out. And as we love ourselves, we love each other, we love those around us. Lord, as we allow our lives to be full worship to you, expressing our love and devotion to you. We pray that this story, this gospel story, would echo in all of our actions deep within our heart. So now, Lord, as we sing these lyrics, help us to remember why we're here.